Judge Halsey, you're going to start us out in your capacity as chair of the committee? Yes, I am. Welcome. It's nice to see you. Thank you. Living the dream here in St. Paul with us today. <laughs> uh, may it please the court, uh, as was indicated, I'm Judge Steve Halsey. I'm chambered in Wright County in uh, Buffalo. <clears throat> I'm here to make comments regarding the 2018 uh, report uh, regarding uh, the recommendations were indicated in that report. So first of all, the committee met twice, first in July and then in September. We heard from several stakeholders, uh, several which you will hear from today, and we heard that from them through not only written submissions but also at a public hearing that was advertised on the main judicial br uh, branch website. Uh, the committee exchanged drafts and fully examined all the issues that were before it. Meeting summaries have been filed alongside a report for the benefit uh, of all to review. Our first recommendation concerns uh, timing rules that is found at page four of our report. Uh, uh, the court's March 13, 2017 order directed the committee to consider the Civil Rules Committee's proposal to modify rules for counting days. The goal is to simplify the calculation of deadlines, especially where documents are e-filed and e-served, and make the calculation of time the same in state and federal court for most deadlines. The committee recommends a 7, 14, 21, 28 day format for most uh, periods less than 30 days. The proposed timing rules are set off separately in an appendix, and that starts at uh, right after page 32 of our report. Uh, this is to permit the court to address them alongside proposals that are from other committees. Our recommendation accommodates self-represented litigants in family and conciliation court matters by repeating the complete scope of civil rule uh, of procedure 6.01, the main civil timing rule in the rules, rules 354 and 503.01. Our second recommendation uh, concerns the notice triggering appeal period that starts at page five of our report. Your uh, November 30th, 2017 order directed the committee to review the potential ambiguity raised by uh, NRA RK, which was decided by uh, this court in uh, 2017, where the court serves both, the trial court serves both a party and the party's attorney with a notice of or a copy of an order creating a potentially ambiguous appeal deadline. This concerns uh, termination of parental rights cases. And the committee recognizes that the final orders in those cases often uh, discharge trial counsel. The committee recommends that for these juvenile protection proceedings only, where the, tr the court administrator serves notice of filing of an order on a party represented by an attorney and on that party's attorney, the time begins to run for purposes of appeal once uh, both the attorney and the party have been served, or if the order also discharges the attorney once the formally represented party is served. Uh, the changes are confined to, to uh, excuse me, the changes are confined to child protection proceeding appeals under juvenile protection rules 10.03 and 47.02. And these are noted as an exception in comments to general rules of practice 1.03 and 14.02F. Uh, Cross-references will have to be checked as the Juvenile Protection Advisory Committee has separately submitted revisions to that set of rules. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Uh, our recommendation number three is what we spent most of our time discussing, and that is the housing court rules, which are applicable only to Hennepin and Ramsey counties. There was a joint proposal from the second and fourth judicial districts for updating various rules, including clarification of the scope of agent participation. Uh, the joint pro uh, proposal from the second and fourth districts resolves existing split over the extent to which non-attorney agents can appear. The compromise limits non-attorney agent participation to initial proceedings and requires licensed attorneys at law to represent artificial entities in an evidentiary hearing in housing court. The joint proposal represents the view of the two districts expressed via their chief judges. The committee was fully aware of the split in support and opposition from the various stakeholders who you'll hear from today, I imagine. As noted in the joint proposal and the committee meeting hearing, summaries were filed with the report to the court. Some of the committee felt that the issue of non-attorney agents, and I agree with this, that uh, that issue is above our pay grade as it is a policy matter for this court to decide who should be practicing uh, law in our courts. Historically, the committee declined to make a recommendation in the past in 2009 on a proposal to admit corporations to appear in district court on housing matters. Given the split between the districts under the current rule, the committee ultimately decided that the court might benefit from the committee's thoughts on the issue. By a vote of 10 to 5, it recommended adopting the compromise from the joint proposal minus the use of the adjective, quotes, artificial, close quotes, to describe entities requiring attorney representation at evidentiary hearings. Our fourth recommendation is at page 15 of our report, and this uh, concerns denial of a request for rec a recusal of a judge. The committee recommends that Rule, 10, excuse me, Rule 106 be amended to create a seven-day deadline for bringing a motion before the chief judge of the district or the judge's designee to review a judge's denial of a request for recusal. The absence of a deadline has placed uh, cases in limbo. Uh, recommendation number five from the committee concerns the complex case notice, and the committee recommends that the court form, that court form civil 117 should be amended to provide a clear opportunity to advise the court the case is suitable for management as a complex case under Rule 146. Uh, early identification of these complex cases allows better opportunity uh, for, the court in, uh, for the court in issuing scheduling uh, orders. Recommendation number six is on page 23 of the report. This concerns venue changes by child support magistrates. It recommends that Rule 353.01 be amended to clarify its application to cases where no party objects to a change of venue. So only disputed motions, not unopposed motions, would need to be referred to a district court judge. Uh, the committee's recommendation number seven is at page 25 of the report, and this concerns child support motions, and the committee recommends a response period for motions in rules 372 and 363 be consistent and set that uh, time period at 21 days. Uh, the committee recommends adopting this separate from other timing rule changes to avoid confusing parties, many of whom are self-represented. And finally, recommendation eight is a number of uh, housekeeping matters, and I won't go into those. 
I just want to thank the, all the members of our committee, also uh, Ch uh, Justice Chudich, who is our lia your liaison to our committee. also want to thank David Hur, who is present, our reporter, and Staff Attorney Mike Johnson, because without them, uh, we would simply be lost in the forest of rules. So with that, uh, if you have any questions for myself or Mr. Hur or Mr. Johnson. Practically speaking, if, if the court adopts the committee's recommendation on the housing court rule, how will life be different? I think it wouldn't, it wouldn't make much difference other than the fact that um, I've heard anecdotally that some, at some of the initial hearings in, in housing court in Hennepin County, and the speakers can correct me if I'm wrong, a lot, some of those matters are, uh, hand, uh, are handled um, on, on the merits at the first hearing, simply as a matter of efficiency. But they can address that if I'm incorrect. But I, I think it just clarifies that at the first appearance, it need not be an attorney. It can be someone who's authorized by a power of attorney. But if the matter goes to a, a hearing on the merits, then it has to be then a LLC a corporation would have to be represented by counsel. Uh, Judge, what would be the principled reason for adopting the the housing court amendment, but then not essentially applying it to housing actions in all the other parts of the state? In other words, why why should landlords in Hennepin and Ramsey? have an advantage over landlords in, to take a random example, Wright County? That was a majority of our discussion on the committee. Why should there be, why, why shouldn't there be uniformity? Why shouldn't first appearances, for example, in my court in Wright County by LLCs by, be by, by council? So um, I guess that goes to the, to the issue of it's kind of above our pay grade as to who practices law in our courts and who, who does not. And well, you, you hear from both sides the, as to besides the Besides the pay grade piece, what, what's the argument that we should have a special rule of representation for landlords in Hennepin and Ramsey counties as opposed to the rest of the state? I think you'll hear from the speakers that it's, it's a matter of cost. Um, the cost to the landlords to, in, in, in the, the two counties that have the vast majority of, of evictions, it's a matter of cost to hire counsel for those first appearances where often the tenants don't appear or if the tenants do appear, then perhaps there's a, there's a negotiation and the case never goes to a trial on the merits. But I, I agree. I, personally, I think it should be uniform. But, and that's why it was a 10-5 vote by the committee. Thank you very much, Judge. I have still four, four minutes and 24 seconds, if Mr. Herr would like to make any comments. All right, All right. Thank, thank you. you. I'll call next to the podium uh, Kristen Ferris from the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Kristen Ferris, and I'm the staff attorney with the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority, uh, more commonly referred to as MPHA, so that's what I'll refer to it as um, during my comments. Uh, I wanted to start by thanking you for the opportunity to discuss the proposed changes to 
um, Rule 603 as it relates to agent representation at first appearances and in negotiation of settlement agreements at those first appearances. I would like to express support for the recommended changes as put forth by the advisory committee and speak specifically why this um, change is important to MPHA. MPHA has played an active role in um, this process because any changes that would prohibit, prohibit or limit agents at first appearances and during those settlement negotiations would have a direct and significant hard, would create a direct and significant hardship on MPHA specifically. MPHA is unique to Minnesota in its size and governance. We're a public agency uh, that is exclusively funded through federal appropriations um, through the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And we're also the largest landlord in the state of Minnesota. We have approximately, we have over 6,000 units um, in the city of Minneapolis alone. And I don't have a fact on this, but I would guess that we're likely the one of the landlords who most often use the housing court in Hennepin County. Um, every month, we have an average of over 20 eviction actions that appear for first appearances, uh, specifically for non-payment of rent. Sometimes that can exceed to 30 or 40 cases. And in fact, given the volume of cases that we have, specifically for non-payment of rent, uh, the Hennepin County Housing Court has created a dedicated hearing date each month for our cases. And they re require that... Um, we have 10, case, or 10 cases per person on those days. So that would mean that when we have cases up to 40 cases on a given calendar day, we are required to have four staff people there at that hearing. Uh, currently, we have two full-time non-lawyer employees who are responsible for tracking, filing, and appearing for our non-payment cases. These people are most familiar with the case. They're following this case all the way through. Um, they're following up with the tenant or with the landlord or with the property manager to find out what's going on in the case. And um, they're the ones who are at that first appearance and working on the settlement case or the settlement of the case. MPHA. Council, um, it, it seems to me, so if I understand you, Hennepin has already made uh, some accommodations by having a singular calendar that has M MPHA, MPHA yep. uh, cases on, correct? Correct. Okay. And um, would you also agree with me that uh, tenants don't necessarily get that same um, treatment? For example, they, they don't know, they don't have any say about when their cases are put on the calendar. Uh, correct, they do not, um, not to my knowledge. So why would we make the playing field a little even more uneven? Well, in our cases, the benefit of having a dedicated day is that we're able to communicate that to the tenant um, much earlier in advance. Um, if we're waiting for the court to assign us a day, uh, we might not know that until two, you know, once we do our filing, we know that two weeks beforehand. In this case, we can communicate with our tenants and potentially work out an agreement with them outside of having to go to court um, because we know the date that's coming up. The date, I, I, I understand that. That makes perfect sense mm -hmm. to me. It's an efficiency. But what I'm saying is that if, if the rule is is approved, and you can have a non-lawyer at those first appearances, why, what's the benefit in doing, what's the benefit? Because it already seems like it's a little uneven mm -hmm. when you're looking at the power structure, so why would we do that? 
Well, specifically why MPH, why this is important to MPHA is because uh, we're limited in our funding. Um, our funding is decreasing annually from the federal government and that limits uh, the money that we're putting, or that limits our staff power. We're a very small office. We have three attorneys total, um, myself, one other attorney, and our general counsel. Um, in order for us to accommodate this rule um, and the 10 cases per person, we would have to hire outside counsel in order to uh, appear at these representations, and that would be spending taxpayer money, because we're funded by the federal government, to uh, fund these cases versus spending that money to provide quality housing to our population. So the 20 you're talking about, those are all evidentiary hearings? Those are all first appearances. So Most of our cases settle at the first appearance, and if it goes to an evidentiary hearing from there, our current practice is actually how the rule is written. Um, we'll have an attorney represent MPHA at an evidentiary hearing. But I would say probably 95% of our cases settle at the first appearance for non-payment of rent. So is that the only difference? I mean, it, it, if we adopt this rule, life will change in the sense that there will be, there will allow, you will be allowed to have a non-attorney act on behalf of landlords at the first appearance? Yes, adopting this rule would actually not change the status quo very much for MPHA. Um, to your question that you posed earlier, um, at least in my practice, at least with our experience as an agency, this is how we've actually already been practicing this. This is uh, the suggested rule change is how we operate currently. And so it won't actually change how we're proceeding if this rule is adopted. And should tenants be allowed to have someone who's a non-attorney then to appear on their behalf at the first hearing? Yes, and um, there is, and I'm sure some of the other speakers here will speak to that, but there are cases where um, they will have, uh, well, they can either pay for representation, obviously, but most of our population will um, be eligible for free legal representation at the first appearance. Um, and so that does occur, and that is an opportunity that is provided to them currently. Are the, so, agents, are the agents that you say at that first appearance who have, uh, who are involved in settling about 95% of the cases, are they subject to any ethical rules in their, in their dealings with the tenants? So, um, I don't know that they're subject to any ethical rules, but one thing I do think is important to note is that with housing court, what happens after, if a settlement is reached, that settlement is brought up to the uh, proceeding officer or presiding officer, and it is then reviewed with both parties and signed off by the judge. And so oftentimes I think the concern with if there's some misconduct that might be going on, that is something that would be flagged uh, in our experience, we haven't had any complaints with our agents that I'm aware of, um, but if a concern were to come up, I think that that would be addressed um, by the fact that the settlement agreement is reviewed with both parties to make sure they understand it and signed off by the referee at that time. So, Ms. Ferris, if I'm understanding you, already in Hennepin County, you, PHA has uh, non-attorney agents that are already appearing, have been appearing at these first appearances, right? Correct. Is that also occurring in Ramsey County? I, um, I did speak with our counterparts at the St. Paul Public Housing Authority and was told that they also send agents for their rent collection cases. Okay, so it sounds like it's occurring in Hennepin and Ramsey, 
but then that's not true, and this is more of a question, or is that true in any other of the counties? It doesn't sound like that's happening uh, from what the judge told us uh, when he was here. It's not happening in Wright County, it's, and it's probably not happening anywhere else. Correct, and to that point, um, the difference that was posed, uh, I, I believe to answer that question, the difference between Hennepin and Ramsey County is that they were specifically a pilot project. Um, the housing court in those counties was initiated as a pilot project because of the volume of cases that they get. Well, I understand that, but obviously there are um, evictions going on across the state, all over the state every day, just mm -hmm. not in the, the same volume as we have here in Hennepin and Ramsey, right? Right. And, and so we have we don't have uniformity. I think that's what uh, Judge Halsey was getting at. We don't have uniformity across the state then. There's not uniformity across the state. Um, and I think the specific reason is because this pilot program was created to as a test to see if it is efficient and time saving um, or if it sa saves time and money in order to do it this way, it, in order to allow agents. Um, another thing that I want to point out is that uh, there are other rules that are unique, not just allowing agents, but there are other rules that are unique in uh, housing court. For example, rule 610 allows you to make oral motions the day of um, the hearing. So there are other rules that exist within the housing court rules in order to accommodate this that expediency. Doesn't that suggest even that point? Doesn't that suggest that's what we want attorneys to do? If you're allowed to make oral motions, isn't that something an attorney, a licensed attorney, should be doing? Um, Who is subject to, as Justice Chudich was getting at, um, the ethical rules that that all attorneys in this state are subject to. Well, and I don't know that agents are making oral motions, but I just point that out as another point to say that there are other exceptions that were made in the rules in order for expediency's sake. And I do acknowledge that my time is up, but I just want to um, conclude by stating that uh, this rule was, con or this change in the rule was considered by both the um, both of the courts that are interacting with these, this clientele every day. And so that's why I think that there should, they really know what, they really understand how their courts operate. And that's why I ask that um, you consider adopting the rule as they proposed it. And if not, that um, some sort of exception be made for a public housing authority given the constraints that we have and the clientele that we serve. Thank you, Thank counsel. You. Uh, next, we have Lawrence McDonough from Homeline. You have 10 minutes. Such a fancy thing you have here. I'll try not to break it. Um, Good morning and may it please the court. My name is Lawrence McDonough. I'm pro bono counsel at Dorsey and Whitney and I'm representing Homeline, a statewide tenant advocacy organization. Uh, Homeline's been around for decades and it's uh, assisted, its principal purpose is to assist pro se tenants in their dealings with landlords. They've helped uh, many, many thousands of tenants and sometimes those cases, a, a large percentage of those cases involve tenants facing evictions. Um, Homeline opposes having a special exception in two divisions of two district courts in this state 
to the rule of this court that corporations be represented by counsel. Um, I started my practice, I'm, I'm probably the, the old guy here, at least uh, uh, from my view anyway, and I started my practice in the early 1980s in greater Minnesota, in central Minnesota. And back then, there were very few landlord corporations, and those that were incorporated had counsel in eviction cases. I later moved my practice to a legal aid office in Hennepin County and was principally uh, in Hennepin County Municipal Court back in those days. There were no housing courts in the late uh, 1980s. Uh, evictions were heard in municipal court, like county courts, were courts of limited jurisdiction. They were above conciliation court, but they weren't district court. But still, there were very few landlord corporations back then. When I would see agents in court, they'd be representing unincorporated businesses and sometimes individual landlords having their caretakers there. The only rules at that time that were specific to eviction cases were in the municipal court rules of the 4th District. And in a very early version of those rules, they did allow for corporate self-representation in limited circumstances, and I discussed that in my letter of comments. Though that provision only lasted about two years, from 1979 to 1981. Ever since 1981, there has been no rule specific to eviction cases that's had anything to say about corporate self-representation. Because of my specialization in landlord-tenant law, I've been around for a lot of the changes in landlord-tenant law and statutes and in rules. And that includes the unification of the district courts and having these municipal court rules move to special district court rules for the 4th District and later into the rules of general practice, and 603 is the one that we're discussing today, um, but also the creation of housing court. I was on the governor's commission that proposed it. I actually proposed it myself, and um, the lobbying that created it in the legislature and the uh, promulgation of the rules. And in none of those events was there ever a conversation about let's treat corporations specifically differently in eviction cases or in housing court cases. Now what happened in the 1980s and 90s was a really sharp rise in the use of landlords using corporate entities for their properties. Even to the point that it's actually rather common now for landlords to have separate LLCs for separate buildings. So if a uh, tenant's involved with habitability litigation in a building and gets a judgment, that judgment cannot reach other properties held by the landlord. Now over this time period in Ramsey County, the court has been saying to um, um, corporations, even at the filing desk, that you need to be represented by counsel. And, that's, and, and, and hearing today that uh, the rent calendar doesn't uh, require the St. Paul Public Housing Authority to have counsel kind of surprises me. That may in fact be the case, but that was not my understanding. Um, when in our pro bono program, when we've represented a small nonprofit landlords in Ramsey County, um, they have been told that they need to be represented. And in Hennepin County in the early years, district court judges, and housing court is district court, I mean, if I had a dime for every time someone said, well, housing court's not district court, well, I'd have a few dollars anyway. Um, it is district court. And the early judges and referees were saying in decisions on the subject 
that corporations have to be represented. And it was really only in the last, I'd say, 10 to 12 years that housing court referees in Hennepin County have been saying, no, Nicollet restoration and other cases don't apply to corporations in Hennepin County. And that's really the source of the conflict is really, in my view, this change in practice by more recent Hennepin County referees. How does the way that the rule has been practiced in Hennepin County hurt tenants? How does it hurt tenants? Well, I've certainly observed in both my own practice and when I've been sitting in the hallway watching other conversations, it's a little bit of chaos down there. If you've never been down in housing court, there's a lot of um, you know, supposedly confidential conversations happening right in the hallway out there between parties. And in cases where I've been up against agents, I've found uh, a kind of a poor knowledge of the law. Uh, when I've observed um, agents um, negotiating with tenants out in the hallway, uh, to be honest, I've seen some what I view bullying behavior uh, and um, kind of advice to tenants that, you know, you can either work with me now or you can be on the street in a few minutes. Now, that's not to say that all agents are bad people. I've certainly had dealings with agents that I think are good people. Um, but uh, to answer the earlier posted question, there are no ethic rules for the agents that are appearing. And so it's a little bit luck of the draw. Now, there's a suggestion in the committee report that not a lot happens at the arraignments because the evidentiary hearings would be where the real legal stuff happens. And what I would say to that, and I agree with counsel for the housing authority, most of the cases end at the arraignments. They either end from settlements, they end from defaults, but they also end from dismissals. I mean, I've had many cases, you know, I've probably got 10,000 former clients because I've been doing this a long time. I've had many cases that resulted in dismissals at arraignments on issues of lack of personal jurisdiction, inadequate pleading, uh, improper notices, waiver. So Counsel, important legal just, things do happen there. I, I just want to um, interrupt you for a minute and mm -hmm. ask you, about the impact of the court's decision. So there's a broader conversation going on in the United States about the uh, alternative legal models question. Yep. And Utah yes. and Washington State have been doing some work here. And Minnesota's gonna do some work here too. And I'm just wondering if the decision that the court makes on the proposed amendments today will hamstring or help any future work that the court decides to undertake with respect to mm -hmm alternative legal models? I really don't think it's going to have an effect. And, and I will say that I am a supporter of uh, alternative legal models. I was on the, the task force of the Bar Association that ultimately did not proposed a couple different variations and the assembly didn't go with that. I mean, I really think that is something that needs to be done, especially to address legal needs that are unmet. My personal view is that uh, alternative practice should have some form of regulation to it in terms of maybe continuing education requirements, perhaps an ethics code and things like that. I don't think a decision on this one way or the other precludes this. I mean, the proposal for the court is really to kind of enshrine in the rules a practice that's already occurring in Hennepin County that I don't think is a good practice and that I don't think is supported by Nicollet Restoration. But if, this, if the court were to say that that type of practice 
is okay, it still leaves open the door for the court to regulate that practice. But I want, want to be clear that this proposed rule is, is really, I believe, uh, asking the court to make an exception to what it's long held in Nicollet Restoration and other cases because referees in Hennepin County... The proposed rule contains no regulation. It does. It contains no regulation. And the proposed rule is really saying uh, that I think a number of the justices have noted that in Hennepin and Ramsey County, we're going to have like a special island for corporate self-representation that doesn't help happen elsewhere in those districts in other types of cases or around the state. And I think it's a good point. Uh, why should a, a corporate landlord in St. Cloud be treated differently than a corporate landlord in Hennepin County? Do I mean, we need to change the current rule to get to your position? Well, um, I wouldn't mind a change in the current rule. I mean, the problem in my view, I, I believe that some referees in Hennepin County are not following Nicollet Restoration, while uh, I think the judiciary in Ramsey County is following it. In my mind, we shouldn't need a court rule to say follow Nicollet Restoration. Um, perhaps that's an issue for this court to consider, if not, or for another day. Um, I agree with the Public Housing Authority that its, um, it, its reason is for convenience and for cost. I can say that tenants believe that, um, and if I could just finish up this sentence, um, that the court is a little bit tilted toward landlords. If tenants show up late for a court hearing, they lose, and they have to do a motion to reopen. If landlords show up late, often the calendar is held open a little longer. If rent's in dispute, tenants often have to pay rent into court to litigate whether they owe it, but landlords don't. Um, so I see my time's expired. Hold on one um, second. Jess um, has a question. Sorry. Um, Ms. Ferris seems to be arguing for kind of a public housing authority exception to the rule. What do you think about that? Well, I think any exception to the rule kind of raises the question as to why others don't get the exception, whether it's statewide or locally. Um, I feel... She, I think she's saying we're taxpayer-funded organization. Uh, if we spend money on attorneys, we can't spend it elsewhere. I mean, it's kind of a nonprofit public interest exception, as I understand her argument. Right. And I guess my response to that is the Housing Authority is using eviction cases as a mechanism to collect rent. And there's nothing wrong with that. Eviction cases can be used that way. I think other landlords that are faced with both filing fees and if they're corporate landlords in other jurisdictions having to pay for attorneys have to figure out, is this the best way to collect rent? And perhaps if if a Nicollet restoration was applied to the Minneapolis Public Housing Authority, it might choose different battles or different processes to try to resolve those issues and only go to court when they absolutely have to. Thank you, Council. Thank you. And then we have, next we have Luke Grundman from Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid. Welcome. Welcome. And thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, my name is Luke Grundman. I'm with Mid-Minnesota Legal Aid. We, I work closely with Mr. McDonough. I work, work closely with Ms. Ferris. This is a, a small network of people who, who operate in housing court in, in Hennepin County. What we do where legal aid comes in is we represent people in court, as many as we possibly can. We represent tenants in court. We try to defend evictions whenever possible. 
We are the folks who are there when people arrive. They've never seen a lawyer before, but we're the ones who are there to try to help them. So I, I come to the court and I speak from that angle as I oppose the proposed amendment. We already know why it's important for corporations to appear through counsel. Nicolette Restoration tells us that. I think it, this court told us that almost 30 years ago now. I, I don't think I have the words to say it better. It protects the integrity of the judicial system. The only question for this court or for this proposal is why we should treat housing court any different. What is it that's different about those cases that requires us to do something else besides what's already been done and decided by this court? Counsel, it seems to me that um, given the numbers and the high rate of settlement is that housing court has been turned into sort of a, that first appearance as like a mediation which really could be happening outside of the court process, leaving the court to really only handle the cases that require the court's attention. Is that a fair statement? Your Honor, I think that that's fair. However, I think there are some concerns with that. First is that the power imbalance between landlords and tenants is so great that a tenant trying to engage in mediation with a, a landlord's agent, particularly one who's not bound to any ethical obligations, is subject to a basic um, a conversation in the courthouse. And part of what I wanted to do here today was to just sort of draw a picture for you guys about what, the, what housing court looks like. And what you can imagine to answer your question, Your Honor, is that you've got a non-attorney agent having this conversation in the hallway with a tenant about what the law is, what the rights are. The tenant has not been advised by an attorney in many circumstances because there just aren't enough attorneys to do that. And so they're trusting, in, in large part, they have nothing else to do except to trust as a professional agent. And what I was envisioning actually would be that there would be someone there for the tenant, but it would happen outside of the court process. And there's nothing preventing that from happening with the creativity of those who work in housing. I agree 100%, Your Honor, and I think that particularly for the concerns expressed by the Public Housing Authority, that there should be a pre-filing mediation concept that's adopted. I, I agree 100%. I, and with respect to my colleague and friend, Ms. Ferris, the argument that because there are 40 evictions scheduled every month, we need to, um, that, that, that makes it hard for us to, to deal with those cases is a little like saying that, a hospital saying that, well, we scheduled 40 surgeries for this month, but we don't have, for, we don't have enough surgeons to do those surgeries. It's the Public Housing Authority who's filing these lawsuits. They are the litigant in the case. Uh, we work very closely with the Housing Authority, but just to give you an example, I had a case recently against um, Public Housing Authority. My client um, came to court. She'd been served with an eviction for non-payment of rent. She said that she had paid the rent, and she had an envelope addressed to the Housing Authority, to the address that she thought it was supposed to go to, and that proved it. And so at, at court, there's a non-attorney agent representing MPHA. Of course, we can't settle the case. They say we don't have authority to settle go back to the office, set up for, we set up for trial, go back to the office and settle it. And, and the, to their credit, the housing authority immediately agrees to dismiss and expunge that case off my client's record. But the, the, the reason I bring that story up, Your Honors, is because the client said to me at court, she said, well, why didn't anybody call me? You know, why did no one say, or knock on my door and say, I, I owe the rent? And I, I know that they have a ton of cases, Your Honors, I get that. And really, that our biggest concerns about this are not addressed at the public housing authority. It's addressed at the outright fraud and lies that can be said by non-attorney agents who have no ethical representation or obligations to them. Another example I have for you is a, case, is a client who showed up at court, a tenant who showed up at court with all the money she, she supposedly owed to the landlord. She was all set to what we call redeem, 
pay the landlord Council, off. Council, let me just stop you for a minute because as I understand the genesis of this proposal, it comes from the chief judge in Hennepin County and the chief judge in Ramsey County. So why would we assume that the chief judges of these two large judicial districts are coming forward to the Minnesota Supreme Court with a proposal that's going to, in effect, enhance fraud, as you're arguing? Your Honor, and I, I think it, with respect to the chief judges of both districts, I think they deferred to the housing courts. And I, I, I don't think that they fully understood the fraud that's taking place, to be honest with you. I, I don't think that they see it the way that we do. Part of our concern about this is the fraud is taking place in the hallways. The lies are taking place in the hallways where the court has no supervision or understanding of even what that's going on. And I think that's why this, this court is here. I think this court should decide what is the most appropriate way to, or who should be the ones who, who go into the courtrooms. We are if always- we said, What if we said agents can do this as is proposed in the rule, um, um, but they're subject to the lawyer uh, professional rules of conduct, and they can only do it when the tenant's represented by counsel. Your Honor, that would certainly be a better approach. My concern would be that there aren't enough t lawyers to represent all the tenants. That I, uh, sold. You got me. <laughs> right. But on that point, but we can't solve that problem today. <laughs> um, I mean, there are lawyers. Yourself, you're an example who represent tenants. So why not say in those cir circumstances? landlords can, or the public housing authority can have an agent represent them um, in, so, that, so that there's representation on both sides, so to speak. Your Honor, I, I think that would definitely be a better approach. And I think that would, to a large extent, ameliorate the problem of fraud. I do think, though, there's another major concern here, and it has to do Before with- Before you get on yes. with the answer to the Chief Justice's question, how, as a practical matter, would that work? My understanding with housing court is um, you off, the tenant often doesn't get representation until the day of. So how, how would it work in terms of the agent knowing or not knowing whether the client is represented or is going to be represented? That is a, a very good practical concern and you're absolutely correct. We, we, because of the very short notice periods before an eviction hearing, tenants sometimes will only find out about it because it's taped to their door. They find out about it just a few days in advance. That's by state law. We're not in front of the legislature. They're down the hall. But I'd ask that that be extended at some point. But it, as the things exist, most tenants barely have enough time to figure out how they're going to deal with daycare and deal with their job to somehow get to court. They certainly don't have time to be calling lawyers. So we meet them there. We have lawyers there at court. So I think there would be serious practical considerations. But I, I think to the Chief Justice's point, I, I think that certainly if there's a lawyer representing the tenant, we don't have to worry as much about lies and fraud. What we do have to worry about, though, is, is the difficulty in, in practice in that context. From, from, for my representation, for the lawyers I work with back at Legal Aid, we have a very difficult time because there's sort of an underlying assumption here that, that a lot of these cases are very simple. It's just about non-payment of rent. There's no big deal. But that's not the case. A case that looks like non-payment of rent on its face, it might involve serious federal, state, and local rights. There's a law, the Violence Against Women Act, that could apply. That takes a careful analysis by an attorney and then making that argument in court or to the opposing counsel. That's how we settle the cases, Your Honors, is by saying, my client has a right under the Violence Against Women Act, the Fair Housing Act. Tenants with disabilities are entitled to reasonable accommodations that can provide a defense to a housing case. Local laws regarding licensure of properties can be, can be brought up in a normal, what may look like a run-of-the-mill simple case. 
So when there's a non-attorney on the other side, and we say to that non-attorney, this is our defense. This is the defense that the tenant has to this case. And we run through a list. It's 59 different things on our list that we go through every time we represent a tenant. And we say to the other side, this is the defense we have, but they've never heard that before. They don't know the laws. They can't use that as they assess the case and decide whether or not to settle it. And we can't set everything to trial. I don't think the fourth and second judicial districts want us to because that would be a lot of trials and that would really slow down the process as well. A certain number of these cases need to be resolved because of the huge influx need to be resolved at the first appearance hearing. And it requires fully educated folks on both sides to make an assessment of that. When Ms. Ferris is at court, we have an easy time settling cases. I think because they can see our hand and we can see theirs and, and we reach a result that's best for both parties. But when it's a non-attorney there, it gets very difficult. Counsel, if I may, of, of what uh, value is it? I mean, one of the things we read in the materials is that uh, a benefit to tenants by having a non-attorney there is that if they don't prevail, they're not assessed uh, the landlord's attorney's fees because many leases have that clause within their, their leases. Where is that in the mix for you? Thank you, Your Honor. Yes, and to address that point directly, the law already, there's a statute that says that on a, a tenant who redeems their property, so if they come to court with the money, pay it, stay in their homes, they're not, they don't owe the attorney fees. Um, there are, the attorney fees are capped at $5. The Court of Appeals just about a year ago or so reaffirmed that that applies across the board. So that, I think it's a small concern. 93% of the cases are filed for non-payment of rent. So 93% of those cases are subject to the $5 attorney fee cap. And I think so for the breach cases, breach of lease cases, there are some other cases. I won't pretend that it's never going to happen in candor to the court that some tenants will will face. But I think what, what we've heard today and what landlords would typically tell us is for those more complicated cases, they're going to send a lawyer anyways because, because it's, they certainly can't rely on their non-attorney agents to represent them in court on a complicated matter. Thank you very much for your time and for taking this seriously, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. All right. Um, that concludes the speakers for today. This matter is submitted. Uh, I want to thank the chair of the Rules Committee and all the members of the committee and the staff and the reporter uh, for all their good work and all of our speakers and those who submitted public comments uh, on this matter. This matter is submitted. We'll issue uh, an order in both of these matters in due course, and we are in recess. <laughs>